Rebonjour tout le monde, chers auditeurs et chères auditrices de Topical Reflections on Music. Aujourd'hui, j'ai le grand plaisir d'accueillir Clio Montreuil. Elle est musicienne canadienne et polonaise qui demeure en Autriche. This uh, exchange will be mostly done in English, and I have invited Clio to uh, respond uh, sometimes in French when she feels comfortable. Clio, who uses the stage name Clio M, is a mezzo-soprano writer, composer, and multi-instrumentalist who weaves imaginary worlds out of words and sound. Her genre-defying works blur the borders between folk, classical, electronica, and science fiction. Cleo Montrey sings at Theater an der Wien in Vienna, Austria, with the award-winning Arnold Schoenberg Corps, in addition to her work as contemporary soloist. Over the past three seasons, she has sung a number of stage operas, including Beethoven's Fidelio, directed in a film production by Academy Award winner Christoph Weiss. She has received numerous awards for her creative work, including five competitive composition grants from the Austrian Ministry of Arts and Culture. Welcome, dear Cleo. Thank you, merci. Um, I'm going to answer a lot of these in English because I am better at English than I am at French. Uh, mais je vais tenter de répondre aussi en français quand je peux. Alors, on va avoir un peu de bilingualisme ici. Merci beaucoup. Euh, Pas de, de problème. Euh, la première question est un peu informelle. When did you start and why did you start to use the stage name Clio M? Oh, it's uh, actually pretty funny. I started using it because I wanted a fun Facebook name. And I put it on my Facebook and then I liked how it looked. And... I liked how it sounded and then I pulled my friends and they also seemed to like how it sounded and it just fit really nicely when I did my first indie solo show in 2014 I did a little concert on ukuleles uh, with a fellow contemporary composer who was also doing indie experiments Ricardo Tovar it was my show and he was my guest and we played some ukuleles we sang uh, I premiered a bunch of folk songs I'd written and I just at first thought it would be a wonderful way to divide my persona into indie and classical. And as time went on, I realized indie Clio and classical Clio converge at many points and it got a little more complicated than that. So uh, I tend to use that stage name a lot when I'm doing my own creations. And I use Cleo Montre when I'm performing uh, other people's works or sometimes in the context of academic presentations and otherwise where a full name would make more logical sense. But I do use both. Cleo M is uh, very universal. In fact, the first performer, the first North American performer of my music was called, went by M, his first name. That's so, fantastic. Yes, it's I a, love that name. Yes, it's a wonderful name. So, Cleo, you are Polish as well as Canadian, and you currently live in Austria since 2008. Yep. As an interdisciplinary artist, you're in great position to tell us what are the main differences, cultural, economic, or others, between North American and European approaches to producing and situating interdisciplinary art projects in the respective cultural milieu. 
All right. Well, that's a lot, but I think I can try it and answer. Um, yeah, I'm. Uh, my parents both originally come from Poland. Uh, they're Polish Canadian, and I was raised speaking Polish, English, and then French. I'm uh, French immersion, immersion française. Alors, uh, je me rappelle beaucoup parce que j'ai aussi travaillé en français uh, plusieurs fois uh, dans ma vie. Uh, but mostly English uh, and Polish were my dominant languages growing up, more so English than Polish. Uh, and here, of course, I speak German. So cultural differences, I guess we'll start with, there is a difference between Slavic culture, Polish culture and Austrian culture, and there are many similarities. Uh, and also in North America, we have a lot of cultural differences between Quebec and English Canada, but also between the different regions. I guess for interdisciplinary art projects, I've found both places very welcoming. Um, I do still maintain a lot of work relationships with Canadian artists, and I am on a, an ongoing project right now, actually, uh, with uh, the Association for Opera in Canada. It's a mentorship program that I'm a part of. Um, and so I find that the cultural differences are mainly, I guess, you can get similar projects off the ground, but I've always found that North America, due to its relative, relatively fresh outlook on classical music, means that we have a completely different approach than in Europe. But that's, that's actually really beginning to change. I can't say Europe is less innovative. I think we have a lot more direct funding here in Europe for interdisciplinary projects, which means that on the one hand, more of it gets to happen, but on the other hand, sometimes we don't find those solutions that we would only find in cases of an emergency. Mm -hmm. uh, but that also doesn't apply to places like the Banff Center where one can receive a lot of funding. So I think actually more than anything, the two places are quite similar because the network is so international. I have found just very positive cultural contributions from Canada, from Poland, from Austria, from all these different places. And the interdisciplinary spirit I've found is very much the same spirit of positivity, of, um, of collaboration, um, of people trying to really support each other on the artistic scene. And I that mean, is like much how more we are starting on such a positive, uh, uh, on such a positive note. Yeah, uh, it's important I, because I love what I do very much. Everyone needs uh, everyone needs uh, a, a positive artist to bring uh, some uh, hope, especially nowadays. Now uh, you you are uh, one of our most international guests. Uh, you hold composition <laughs> degrees from both North America and Europe. Yes, I do. <laughs> so how does the pedagogical approach to teaching composition differ from one continent to the other in your experience, especially with regards to um, research university versus uh, conservatory situations? Are there some cultural differences that strike you, strike you as particularly jarring? Without considering any possible financial pitfalls, how would you advise beginner composers to choose their educational institution? Well, I think there is a lot to be said for both. Uh, Europe is very close to the old conservatoire, conservatory setting. Uh, and we have some of that in North America as well, uh, where I studied in Canada mostly, McGill, is uh, very close to the conservatoire model in a lot of ways. 
but we have more stress in North America. I feel, I mean, from my own personally limited experience, I feel that we have a little more stress on these extracurricular sort of ideas, a few more classes from outside of the, uh, our field of specialization. I actually hold a minor in geography as well from McGill, and that was very easy to arrange. Um, those things are not so common here. It's more specialization based, I would say, but on the plus side, people are perfectly free to pursue a degree at one university and at another concurrently. The timing does allow for that. It's pretty flexible that way. So both systems have different types of flexibilities. You can get away very easily being um, very single minded in both places or very broad in both places. But I feel the musical training specifically, since you asked about that, I would say that when I got here, I was very surprised that I didn't have to culturally pull all nighters. Uh, I was used to pulling all nighters at McGill. And that doesn't mean necessarily that here I worked less. It's just a different way of motivating the students. And I, I like both ways. I think that in Canada, I was uh, also, of course, younger, and I was in a bachelor's degree, so perhaps the master's is different, but I felt like it was sort of presented to me on a plate in a lot of ways. So we mm -hmm. had the entrance week, and then we had some seminars on how to do things and master classes regularly. And here I found like everyone expected that I already know, and off you go. And actually that was very freeing in some ways but in some ways it was deeply confusing at first especially when it was all in german all of a sudden and i was not quite as fluent as i am as i am today this has been uh, my experience as well i was extremely mm -hmm. surprised by some of my north american colleagues how um, they expected the university to provide uh, everything this includes entertainment uh universities having swimming pools gyms and restaurants uh, was uh, something i had never seen uh, before in a way this meant that uh, many people especially foreign students uh, can choose to live in a bubble here in north america and basically never leave the university they don't get to really integrate in the local town so um, uh, actually, there is an entire expression called the McGill bubble. Ah, yes, that one I know yeah, it well. The, the, the McGill bubble, the McGill ghetto. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. It's that sort of. It's it's also a type of mm. attitude, I find. It, it is, but I also have to give something for it because it's a sense of community, and I have to say that's actually changing here because now there are a lot more. Well, in COVID, one just isn't on campus. I. I guess, but um, in more normal times, uh, there were a lot of activities from the students union coming up and there were a lot of sort of info nights and movie nights. And also there were things uh, on campus like cafeteria style that were restaurant ish and a cafe. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't quite exactly what the North American model is, which is sort of more of like a small town. Mm -hmm. We have completely different setups so you might have a student dorm out in the 19th district which is yeah. pretty far from downtown and that's not right beside the campus right so you mix and interact with your urban environment in a completely different way that's informed by a history that has been around for 
a thousand years or more. Whereas in North America, what was there for a very long time historically was sort of, <laughs> well, pushed aside for a model that was then put in its place. And so it's a very well, different approach. Indeed, uh, in, in Europe, cities and universities uh, grew together in uh, m many times and expanded together. Uh, whereas in, in some North American towns, uh, universities were built as a small city on a plot of land. Even McGill was built like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, was an, it was an empty plot of town at the edge mm. of Montreal. And now, right. and now it's downtown, but it wasn't downtown when it was built. It was literally a field. Uh, so you could build anything you want, uh, tabula rasa in a way. Now to move away from mm -hmm. uh, from university, yeah, you yeah. also have a diploma in classical operetta. I do. So how does your vocal training influence your vocal writing, especially in the non-classical genres that you created? Oh boy, this is exciting because it's kind of been my passion for a very long time. I actually got into singing seriously because I sang in choir and I composed for the choir at McGill, actually. And that was my composer in residency. So I was always always already very interested but when I got here I started singing because I was composing for a wonderful soprano colleague of mine and one day I said I really need to learn this and so I wrote my master's thesis on composing for voice uh, it informs everything it informs how I perceive which voice is going to be used the health of a singer uh, what kind of singer I would use for a certain piece but also what demands I would place on that singer many contemporary classical or if you want to call it, that's it's a very tough descriptor. Uh, people who write new music, let's say, let's be more broad, give incredible demands to these poor singers. And then having been on the flip side of that coin, where I was placed in front of a microphone in front of a concert hall with five pages I've never seen before in my life with various intervals needing to sight read them, uh, I can tell you that the health of your performers <laughs> as well as their mental state in a performance is of extreme importance and my non-classical work um if you want to call it that because i do cross over back and forth a lot uh gets informed a lot by different genres that exist by folk by even a pop a bit um uh, by rock and also actually by classical vocal production. So these, this knowledge, this intimate knowledge of performing, I then use my own voice, of course, in electronic works without needing to hire a singer. And I have this spontaneous and visceral ability to sing things and then work them into my composition instantaneously. It doesn't have to be extrapolated onto paper, interpreted by someone else, which of course has its own merit and its own process. But having that direct organic connection between composing and performing allows me to develop ideas very quickly and sometimes to develop ideas I never would have thought possible. And then when I collaborate with other singers, for example, and I give them something to sing, I might be better able to explain or translate something that I have put on paper because I have a, a visceral understanding of it. Well, this is also the benefit of not being a one-trick pony. Also, et uh, je crois qu'on devrait uh, dire quelque chose en français, enfin, parce qu'on l'a promis. <laughs> oui, c'est ça, mais uh, j'apprécie beaucoup l'effort de, 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 de chacun et chacune de mes invités de dire quelques mots en français. Um, 
Mais euh, c'est compris que aussi la, la majorité de nos auditeurs et nos auditrices euh, provient des, des pays euh, non francophones. Alors, on maintient quand même la présence du français autant que possible, mais euh, c'est com compris que la majorité des auditeurs et auditrices euh, seront non francophones. Uh, but it, and I cannot translate the expression one trick pony in French. It's, uh, it's one I really learned in English. I also cannot. Yes, it, it is a wonderful expression, uh, and it really applies to interdisciplinary artists who need to be more or less proficient in at least two domains, uh, just like you. Now, you, uh, uh, you have also worked professionally as social media strategist. You also have a very prominent presence on Instagram as well as on Patreon. For those among our listeners who do not know what Patreon is, It is a platform where one can let fans become active participants in the work they love by subscribing to our monthly membership, which gives them access to exclusive content and insight into the creative process of an artist they support. So back to you, Clio. How do you tailor the online marketing of your independent brand, which we now know to be very sophisticated, to your needs in order to, the big word, monetize your artistic output. <laughs> and you summarize your experience in the form of advice to artists who are only now seeking to enter the independent creator market. Absolutely. And I think the two words are be yourself. And if you would like a persona that's separate from your self that you are to friends and family, that's absolutely fine. I know a lot of examples, wonderful artists that do that. Um, and they're very successful at it. Uh, for me, however, it would, I would just find it very taxing to mm -hmm. do that. So I prefer just to convey aspects of myself, but being yourself also doesn't mean being careless when you're really passionate about what you do. And I'm very passionate about the stories I write, the music I write, the music I perform, and I can share that with people. And they're hopefully happy to receive the product, but they're also happy to see me grow and to see how it's going. And sometimes it's going wonderfully, like today, for example, really good mood. It was sunny outside. I went to see pink flowers in the park. You know, a unicorn flew over at some point. It was great. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, just not that kind of day every day, right? And on those days when things are really tough, I look to music as something to make me grounded, sometimes to reflect upon things, sometimes to meditate, sometimes to bring back that wonderful mood. And I look to my writing to do the same for me. And I think that's why I come across as so ineffably positive mm -hmm. because for me it's a way to view the world through a lens that is very hopeful my art is very hopeful if you look at any of it uh, even the darker things are more hopeful uh, but that's okay if yours isn't if your vision is one that's more realistic if your vision is one that is looking at what is wrong in the world please by all means just be authentic be an authentic voice whether that's a constructed voice that is your artwork and If you want concrete social media tips, uh, we can do a few of those. Would you like to hear what um, what I would do? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so first of all, don't get buried in a thousand accounts at once. Choose a couple that work for you. And 
mine that are working for me currently really well are Instagram for photos and sharing some live streams, uh, YouTube for longer live streams. My primary network would actually be Facebook, even though a lot of what I post is close to the general public, because I tell my friends there, hey, I have this thing going on on Patreon. Mm-hmm. A primary network also would be Patreon itself, because there I'm talking directly to people who support my artwork. Um, Instagram, also pretty primary. Something secondary might be something like I use fairly often, like SoundCloud. Now, this is just the Clio classification system, so you okay. can call it what you want. but. Um, each network is going to have some sort of different meaning for you, but don't get on all of them and then think, oh my goodness, I'm so lost. Uh, follow people that are telling interesting stories. Um, I myself do a lot of lives uh, and it's very fun to do that because I go on uh, Instagram and then I challenge myself to compose on the spot. Mm-hmm. And that shows authenticity and vulnerability, but I'm not doing it to show authenticity and vulnerability. I'm just analyzing now from that point of view. So the training itself has been useful, yes, but sometimes you have to shut that training off because it gets in the way. We are not a car, we are musicians. And, or if not musicians, maybe you're a photographer, maybe you're a writer, maybe you make art, maybe you sell jewelry, I don't know, but you're definitely not going to need the same marketing as a car or a bridge or insurance so i think people need to also stop thinking of themselves as a product because Mm -hmm. we are not a product we always are made to think of ourselves that we are a product but we are not a freaking product and i'm sick of that terminology so the training also informs my commitment to be more authentic to myself i hope that answers a question in there somewhere <laughs> Indeed, it also provides a segue to my next question excellent just spoke about the 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 different uh, networks and the mm-hmm. different um, accounts mm-hmm. and uh, so also your artistic output targets multiple audiences simultaneously um, i wish to focus more in depth on on a piece that i on a work sorry that mm-hmm. i particularly enjoy mm-hmm. Uh, it is a gravity wing. So with oh, one version yay. premiered in 2016 in Australia, the 2017 world premiere presents an artistic product of a sci-fi story illustrated with video and music and sold both as a book and an album. The subject yes, the matter- video and music, sorry, I have to interrupt here, is by Hal okay. Ray. Uh, and she also happens to be my wonderful mom and she's very talented. So I just wanted to throw that in there because I don't think I sent you that credit when I sent you my information. So sorry to interrupt. And all, all links will be in the description of the episode for anyone interested. Now uh, I, will read, uh, I will read a little resume. Isabel is offered an artistic residency on the planet of New Canada, but beginning again on a new world proves difficult. Unexpectedly invited to a lavish society event, she meets the taciturn Serge and is swept off her feet under an unfamiliar sky. As Isabel and Serge dance in a sci-fi minuet around their feelings, they face the full force of the young planet's rigid social expectations. Now there are very pertinent issues in this little resume. Uh, yes. So here, here I would like to ask you about uh, how do you address those issues? Also, to talk about the collaboration strategies with mm-hmm. the, the different artists 
And I know from experience uh, how wonderful mm -hmm. it can be working with your mother. Yep. Um, and now uh, also talk about your artistic compromises that you might have had to face when producing something mm -hmm. so original. And what strategies did you employ to transform such a niche product into a success? Not only well, creative, but also <laughs> financial, also etc. etc. Um, thanks for featuring that one because that's actually my own personal favorite as well. Uh, I wrote this during a time of great personal change. Uh, and it was a huge outlet for me. And one day I sat down and I wrote what I thought would be a one-page story. And then it was longer and longer and longer. And at the same time, a few days later, uh, more and more and more. And within three weeks, I'd had a draft of a novel. And I thought, my God, I always wanted to be a novelist as a teenager, but I never really thought this would happen. Uh, but it was just flowing. And then the next month, I wrote the entire album. And it was actually prompted by a song challenge called... Uh, February album writing month, which I joined at first for fun, but then I really actually did write 14 tracks. Uh, 12 made it into the final cut, I believe. But I wrote 14 very, very solid, decent pieces of music, some of which are just with a little more mastering directly the end product. So I was on a roll, I guess. And I, I wrote this thing over and over. I made many drafts of the novel over about a period of I guess more than two years. And the music I also edited, uh, collaborations. You asked about collaborations. Mm -hmm. um, artistic compromises, I have to be honest, I made none that I can think of because Excellent. this was my baby. Wow, what Thank wow. You. Okay. Well, because my collaborating artists were gems and they knew how much this project meant to me and they were, Everyone who performed this with me or read a piece of the story. I played with a lot of different instrumentalists. Um, my best friend growing up, Jeanette, proofread it for me. Um, my mom did these beautiful illustrations. Um, my friend Stefano also did a proofread for me. Um, Jeanette did more sort of uh, intense work with that, but he did a sort of test read for me as well. And some other friends. Um, my friend Steph in Australia was incredibly supportive in a large variety of ways. And actually, um, we talked so much that she had me recommended for a festival down there, which is how we got the premiere there. Uh, it was very, very interesting for me to see how everyone was so supportive of my work that they were willing to say, okay, I love what you're doing. I'm going to take a back seat. I will read it. How would you like it read? I would play the viola or violin. It was different instruments and different editions how you would like. Um, so the character Serge is a violist. Um, and so often the viola was on stage sort of embodying this character. So a lot of people would ask me, okay, what's he like? How do I play this? Is it sad? Is it introspective? Is it hopeful? And it was just such a wonderful process. Um, for example, my friend Marie-Claire Saint-Don, who you also know, I believe, also an excellent composer, uh, played a lot of my shows in Canada. Uh, but there were many others, uh, so many, like, I, I can't go through them all here, but just wonderful people. My friend Denise Nittel, a violinist who played a retuned violin into a viola format. She did that for me. She actually changed the tuning of her violin to viola for my project. Yeah, this is sign of real love. It really is. And so, so much love went into that project. Uh, in terms of financial success, 
I have to say it was crowdfunding and that was people believing in me, people who really believed in my artistic vision. And it was very touching to see how much people cared for me to get this thing off the ground. Now you're going to make me all emotional. This is, this is a very important project for me and it remains. So I, I keep playing pieces from this cycle. I keep playing videos from this cycle and um, Hallie, when she did these videos and these illustrations, she asked me, how would you like this? Uh, what is this supposed to portray? You know, all these beautiful details that I don't think I would have thought of to tell so that, someone. Show that she cares and she Absolutely. wants to yeah. contribute yeah. and to enhance your vision. Absolutely. And so I really felt like it was the Clio show in a lot of ways. And to get that in one's life is just such a gift. Uh, I don't want to dominate every project I'm on, obviously, but when it but, is your vision, your baby. But this one, but that. this one you did. Yes, uh, I did. So I did want it's it. It's wonderful that it represents you in such a complete way, in a way. It it does, yeah, yeah, it really does. And now to, it to is, move in the, we are going to stay in the sci-fi sure. world. Okay. With, uh, with my next question, mm -hmm. uh, you have written Aurora and the Twin Planets, a choose-your-own-adventure <laughs> interactive tale accompanied with a contemporary music soundscape. I was personally not familiar with this fusion genre before exploring your work. It offers a magnificent immersive experience and a chance um, to people who are not familiar with contemporary music to open their ears by means of a fantastical tale. Uh, now, do you plan to explore this avenue further? And uh, what distribution strategies can be used to popularize a genre uh, that is so intrinsically tied to the virtual world? Um, what other artists can you recommend that have created similar stories, if you know any? Or is this still a national genre with few creators? Well, that is an interesting question to answer because to my knowledge, I haven't seen another story game that actually has a running soundtrack like this. The soundtrack is pieces mostly drawn from my previous albums. One of them is actually a spinoff of Gravity Wing called New Canada Engines, which is actually the sound of airplane engines that I enhanced and melodized and added instruments to. And the other one is my album Lace from 2019. Uh, so in that sense, no, but I have seen a lot of narrative work. Um, there's a developer based in Vienna whose work I really like, who does a lot of things down the narrative way. Uh, his name online is Leaf Thief. And there's also a developer who does just story games in the same platform or the same engine I developed mine called Twine. And this artist's name is Porpentine. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And Porpentine's work is very much sort of novels where you click something and something happens. So this this choose your own adventures style of storytelling is pretty prevalent. But the, with the particular music pairing, I haven't seen it yet. Maybe it exists. Um, for uh, for our listeners, uh, the yeah. link uh, will be in the description of the episode. If you uh, guys would like uh, to check it out. And uh, make sure you have uh, you have the sound on to experience the full uh, richness of the world. Uh, now, um, <laughs> now we are, as as the saying goes, uh, and now to something completely different. Yes, as always, I guess with both of us. You were you were on the music preparation team of the world of Hans Zimmer, a symphonic celebration concert tour. 
this commercial enterprise starring longtime friends and colleagues of Hans Zimmer is set to remain in high demand. Now, having lived such experiences, you find yourself in a unique position to discuss how commercial enterprises compare to not-for-profit companies such as theaters and tours. Um, what the aspects of each type of company do you believe can benefit the other and how and why? Well, to start with, I uh, have to say that I was quite a small part of the music preparation team of Hans Zimmer, and that's not to put, uh, not to put myself down, but I was called in at the last minute when someone was unable to complete a task, which was some percussion work. Uh, so it was one track, uh, one small part of this very large tour. I guess that was the first part of the experience was being a small part of a lot of moving parts, very comparable to a chorus. Like my singing job is being a chorister, right? So I'm a, a smaller part of a greater whole that needs all these parts to work. I can't say that I know exactly how the world of Hans Zimmer works in terms of its corporate structure, but the one thing I've observed that's very positive about it is the fact that they connect with the audiences very, very deeply and on a very friendly level. Uh, something I also noticed when I was part of another very media music type initiative, which was a tour of the Final Fantasy music from the video game with mm -hmm. uh, actually with the composer Nobuo Uematsu, who came on stage with us. And these experiences are just so incredibly enlivening because the audience is so happy to be there and the engagement is so tremendous. I think that could inform the more traditional, so to speak, concert halls to take some of that on. But I see my own theater doing that in large degree already. So mm -hmm. I think this has been implemented. Uh, the other way around, I have to say, I'm just not, I don't think I'm really in a position to say, because I find that a lot of the commercial ventures are taking a lot of the really effective tools of classical music already and that's why they're so commercially successful um it's hard to criticize something that's such a big hit for me at least especially if like me you enjoy that type of music very much so yeah and you also enjoy research because I do. except uh, on top of all your other activities that, <laughs> uh, that i did to try to address thus far you also partook in the research team of uh, of Dr. Lundberg's project transcoding from highbrow art to participatory culture. And again, uh, your, your last uh, couple of minutes were uh, an incredibly good segue into the idea of highbrow art and participatory culture. Now, this project was funded by the Austrian Science Fund uh, and ran from 2014 to 2017. The research topic was the question of how one could involve an audience that was hitherto not available for the new arts. Uh, for example, creating a link between the world of young people coming from the popular culture and that of internationally working multimedia artists. And so make highbrow art in quotation marks more accessible. So I would like to, uh, for you to talk to us more about the project and also did the participatory approach achieve its originally set goals, uh, what would you advise others who wish to explore the same issues? And um, there is also a book published. Uh, what yes, Barbara book published a book, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, so basically that was one of my favorite 
projects to be on because uh, Dr. Barbara Lunaborg is just brilliant and working with her was so much fun. I'm going to go by first names here with Barbara and uh, she created this project and she took me into it. And when we talked about it, I remember thinking, oh, wow, I would just be so keen to be on this. Actually, one of my former professors, Dr. Karl-Heinz Essel, told me about the project and I applied right away. Um, and I was so glad to be chosen for it because uh, my job on the project was to be the social media strategist slash junior researcher. So mostly I got to community build and get people involved in the project and contribute different forms of artwork and blog about the project and then blog idea prompts and make calls for entries. And then Barbara was analyzing it, creating new artwork. She was doing also a lot of um, artist led sort of practice based practice led research. Uh, that was really artistic research. So it was fascinating to be a part of that as she created this project to support it through this community building. Uh, I guess I would advise people who want to explore these issues to read her book on the subject, which is um, going to be linked, of course, uh, and to be very curious and open to all sorts of things that are going on around them, especially anything that could be gamified. We did talk a lot about gamification on the project. Mm -hmm. um, things that draw an audience in to do more than just consume and to really get in touch with people who are experts on the subject without any fear, because usually these are really nice people that are very happy to link you to their work or perhaps they know someone who could help you. Uh, I found that it was a very warm environment and just very uh, sort of curiosity driven the way I guess academia should always be. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and so highbrow art as something more accessible really struck me as a, as a worthy aim. I'm huge on outreach. I really love the concept of outreach because I feel like in the perfect world, outreach wouldn't be necessary because there's also that undertone of uh, in some situations, this, there's that undertone of being patronizing when you're reaching out, like, who are you reaching out to, right? Like, yeah, what makes sure. me so freaking special that I have to reach out to you and educate you? But this project wasn't like that. It let everyone tell the story together. And that's why I loved it so much. It didn't talk down to anyone. And so I think, it, it achieved its goals, basically. I think so. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of research goals that Barbara discusses in her book, and you can read more about them there or on the web presence and there are also some installations she created there's a lot of things that are different parts of this very large project but what i'm really most proud of, of my contribution was that i helped that community uh come together and i helped support that process of communicating with that community and seeing if they were interested getting their feedback uh getting them motivated to submit more uh, and sort of interacting with them. And I think that that's when one realizes what art is really for. And it's for me really about communication. Uh, for some that might not be it, but for me, I think that concept of highbrow, of, of being detached, I think that's what she really wanted to address is, is breaking down barriers. And I honestly can't speak for her, obviously, and her personal goals and all of these things, which are very well described in the research. But for my own personal goal on the project as a participant on this team, my goals were reached why I joined it, which was really to be able to 
to take part in something that really does engage people that are the consumers of the art, but also the creators of the art. It's such a beautiful thing to create together. And uh, nowadays uh, we are a bit uh, a bit more restrained on the create together part because of COVID. And now we, we reach the present day COVID pandemic uh, that has a, a, an effect on the performing arts mm. in both Europe and Canada. Now, uh, you, uh, as you live and work in, uh, in Austria, you find yourself in an excellent position to tell us how does Austria help the struggling artists right now? Now, uh, does the EU or Austria in particular have the equivalent of Canada's Prestation Canadienne d'Urgence or Prestation Canadienne de Relance Economique? Uh, do you think that the pandemic will redraw the Austrian cultural landscape? And if so, how? Well, um, Austria is very lucky to have, in my opinion, two things, very engaged artists and the awareness that arts actually are very important. So um, one of my favorite university professors here, Dr. Harald Huber, is actually incredibly involved in advocating for musicians' rights. Uh, I've actually uh, worked with him in the last couple of years on a project and he has been incredibly active as long as as much as a lot of other colleagues with him but uh, he's one of those examples that I can cite of someone who really has worked hard to defend musicians rights here um, and I think that the government is quite aware that musicians need funding because there are a number of funds available to artists there is a very large one that's sort of like the specific artist fund. And there's a second artist fund. They differ by the conditions that you need to fulfill. Uh, and artists can also apply themselves to a more general industry fund as self-employed. So there are several possibilities actually. Uh, and they do try to cover for various types of situations because of all these different types of funds that might apply. Uh, it doesn't remove all challenges, obviously, as you well know from Canada, but it does help a lot and it adds some stability to artists' lives. And I think the general art landscape is much more active because of it. And one initiative I really love that I really want to mention is that the city of Vienna last year started a program called Kultur Sommer Wien, which means Culture Summer Vienna, and they set up stages all around the city where artists can perform open air concerts. Uh, the city of Vienna also offered me a grant last year due to COVID reasons, um, which was very helpful, of course, as well. And the state at large, the country of Austria, also offers all artists who need it access to a particular artist's fund. So I have to say that there are a lot of possibilities here for artists to get now, assistance. Is there, a, is there a legally defined statut de l'artiste? in Austria. What does that mean exactly? Does that mean like your status as an artist? Or... Yeah, is, is there such a thing? Because uh, there is talk in Canada about instituting mm. something like this for professional artists. I don't know if it's exactly the same equivalent, but what we do have is that you define yourself as an artist professionally. And to meet that definition, you have to just practice art. Uh, it is a particular work category, artists, okay. yes. And there's this particular status for artists that says Künstler. And I think that's what you mean, right? 
I'm very happy with my composer and singer definition over here. Uh, covers a lot. <laughs> so um, that's what the state sees me as. That's what I'm listed as officially in their databases. And that actually makes me very happy that I can be listed as such in the official databases. Yeah, you're, cool, you're officially right? a singer and composer. Exactly. Congratulations. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> we, are, <laughs> we are approaching the end of, uh, of our exchange today. Um, now, this uh, podcast has a very... Uh, has a recurring topic of ethics. I ask a question to all of the guests who graciously agree to uh, appear in an episode. Now, you are known to be a vocal defender of performance and performers' rights on all social media platforms and in traditional media. Uh, please uh, do talk to us about the ethical dilemmas uh, facing some of the important ethical dilemmas uh, facing producers, performers, and composers concerning just working conditions and compensation. And I'm talking about your milieu, you know, the, the, the milieu that you're, you're currently in. Now, what uh, constitute recurring problems and injustices in the music world that you have addressed multiple times? And uh, last but not least, without revealing too much, what is an ethical dilemma that you personally have faced and how did you choose to navigate it? Well, it, it can be difficult, of course, working in this kind of field when people are sometimes forced to save money. And sometimes I don't even get upset at them because I know that they don't have the money to offer yet they'd like to pull off a great project. Those aren't the people that I have an issue with or let's say the entire landscape is struggling and they just can't cough up that money at present. And they know you have access to a fund. That's, that's also a different situation. Let's talk about the people who will consciously call you and they will say, hello, we want to book an artist and they're very famous and they're gonna cost us too much. And we were looking for someone perhaps a little less, less experienced or perhaps a little less known like you who might want to do this for us what would you charge and then when this happens i say i am out because first of all i do not want to undercut the more famous artists rate yeah. do you know how hard it is to be a famous artist these days <laughs> except those people who are really multimillionaires, and i mean you know i'm happy for them that's great but there are a lot of really well-known artists especially uh those who maybe have a lot of hits a lot of plays and they just aren't making all that much money, especially now without touring. I have actually heard of actors from various TV channels delivering food now to make ends meet. And I mean, delivering food is a very noble profession, but that's not what they're trained for. And I think that that is concerning. So whenever this happens, and it happens with an alarming frequency, I say, Either I tell the middleman because they always send the middleman and it's so sad because I can't tell them to their face what I think. Yeah. But I told the middleman, woman or middle person, please, <laughs> I think you're great, but I'm so sorry. I cannot accept this job because I know that this is going to happen. I'm going to be made a ridiculous offer <clears throat> that is well below anything a union rate would have even imagined as something bad. Mm -hmm. The original artists will never work for the fee they wanted again because they will always be told but this person did it for less why yeah. can't you do it for that amount of money 
and then everyone will go home miserable. Yeah. So that is an ethical challenge because yes, I would need to feed myself, but there are limits and those limits include insultingly low pay because that pay will not pay my bills. Often I'm in the situation that if I were to take these jobs or so-called jobs, shall we call them, then I would have to give up some time working with my chorus at the theater. However, these delightful personages that approach me and you can tell I'm getting really worked up now because yeah, it, happens I can, I can so often. It. it happens so often. And the funniest part is it's always someone who has a lot of budget. And they say, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I can't really pay the composition part, but I could pay you for, to perform. And then, you know, you could you could apply for some funding. You know, I could apply for some funding. And I'm like, you know what? Person who <laughs> I shall not name. And I, I have to be polite, of course, but of course. I say, look, um, please call me when you have the funding secured because I can apply for funding. I do apply for funding for myself all the time. It's kind of part of my job description, but then if I'm going to apply for funding and justify that project to a board or a committee in a government or a funding office, I want to explain why my project I came up with is awesome enough to deserve this money, not yours. No I am not your yeah. money lawyer. So that is something that I really find people, especially um, people of color, indigenous people, women, anyone who's ever been called different in any sort of way, or maybe just even men who are thinking differently, like LGBTQ plus people, anyone who's different gets this with so much frequency, but actually, um, People who are not minorities get this all the time too. Any composer gets this so often and it's just insulting. And I tell you people who want to hire a composer, you hire a composer. So I think the more of us say no, the more ethically we can help our colleagues succeed because this, is, this should all be collaborative. It's not me against all the other composers, especially not those who got all those challenges thrown at them right from the start, who didn't have perhaps the financial means or who had issues uh moving to another country who had language barriers like i'm sorry that's not going to make me want to then clamber to the top and kick them out of the way so that i hope that answers that question i completely agree with you i think that uh, we should uh, we should never accept insultingly low rates mm. because this undercuts our entire community yes if, it does uh, if uh, if a competent person does it for little money, what incentive would anyone have to hire someone at the going rate, at the exactly. good rate? Um, and it is sad that sometimes uh, people are so starved uh, to hear their artistic mm. product come to life that they find themselves in the impossible situation of choosing to accept this uh, insulting yeah. low rate. Now, I do not judge anyone for accepting it if they have to. No, a lot of people have, have to, to. They have to. I mean, uh, people have to eat, but this is kind of self, uh, this is a self-referential vicious cycle yeah. that uh, the only, arts yeah. have come to, down to, and I hope we get out of it. I think that only those of us who can gather a bit more advantage have the power to break it, because those of us who have no advantage cannot break it. People need those jobs desperately. And I mean... Uh, I think arts jobs in general should be paid higher, even those that are according to legal rates. Mm -hmm. I think in general, it could be a much higher paid profession. 
but that's not what I'm talking about today. I'm not talking about those who are compliant. I'm talking about those who are not compliant, who know that the rate is this and they will offer yes. you less and they will try to weasel out or tell you why they can't do it. And the most touching thing I heard lately is um, a dear person that wrote to me and unfortunately I had a time conflict with his project, but I would have loved to do it because he wrote some contemporary music and he wanted to do an outdoor installation for some people to sing in. And I recommended some friends because he said, oh, I'm sorry, but I can't offer so much budget. I'm going to pay you all this much and I hope it's enough. And I'm just one guy. And he was offering almost as much as one of these insulting offers for something like 10 times more work mm -hmm. had quote unquote offered me. And this one individual indie person, I hope makes a huge, wonderful career because he seems like a joy to work with. And he was trying so hard to find the adequate levels of funding and asking me what I thought about that level of pay. Mm -hmm. That's respect. Ask someone when they're hiring them, ask them, is this appropriate? Can I find a way to do more? Can I crowdfund for you? Some people can do that too. It's not that hard. So there are solutions for all of us. And on this positive note, uh, this concludes uh, our meeting today. Uh, dear Cleo, it was so wonderful to have you on and to hear your perspectives on so many different aspects of creative work that you excel at. I sincerely hope that uh, at the end of the pandemic, uh, we will all be able to attend uh, a live and a virtual show of yours. Because uh, as, as I uh, did mention, you do ex excel in both. Thank so you so I'm, much. I'm most, uh, most hopeful that all of our listeners will get to know uh, your work. I will put links in the, in the description of the episode. Uh, thank you for being with us today and have a lovely rest of the day. Thank you for having me and merci beaucoup. <laughs>